Turn with me again tonight to the book of Revelation, and this time to chapter 7. We'll read the entirety of the chapter in just a moment. While you're turning there, um, let me say to you that studying this book of Revelation is a bit like uh, going on a walk in an old forest, uh, namely because the deeper into the forest you get, the more intriguing, more beautiful, the more uh, majestic are the trees, and yet also the deeper you get into the forest, the more easy it is for you to become confused. And so it is with this book of Revelation, and it's good uh, to have a guide to hold you by the hand, someone who's walked through ahead of you and can help you. And I just want to point out to you that as we go deeper into this book, I'm more and more in need of guides, men who have studied and can help me. And one of the most helpful has been uh, Kendall Easley, who was one of my professors in seminary and whose book I'm holding up now before you. Um, I'd encourage you, if you are wanting to study this book along with me uh, in your own time, that this commentary would be incredibly helpful, the Holman New Testament commentary by Kendall Easley. You can find it on Amazon or Cumberland Valley Bible Book Service, uh, and you will be helped thereby. So that's an encouragement. I will be leaning on him heavily tonight and in the weeks ahead, I'm sure. But as we now turn our attention to the passage, uh, let's remember that even more than human guides, we need the Holy Spirit's help. And let's pause and ask for it. Father, we are thankful for human guides who take us by the hand and lead us through the scriptures. I pray that you'll make me that tonight. But at the same time, we know that Jesus said that one is our teacher and that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who guides us into all truth. And so we ask for the Spirit tonight that you would give us help by his strong hand. God, that you'd help me to speak tonight, not in word only, but with the Spirit and with power and with much assurance. Speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read chapter 6 a week ago, we saw Jesus, the Lamb of God, with a scroll in his hand, sealed up with seven seals and written inside on, and on the back. And what was written inside and on the back were all sorts of devastations, we said, that are common to this present age and really to all these years of history between resurrection and return. Not simply common to the end times, but things that we see in the news today. Wars, famine, disease, natural disaster, and so on. That's what's written on the scroll. And as Jesus broke the first six seals on that scroll, we saw those devastations breaking out upon the earth, and we see them continuing to do so even to this day. But then as we, next week, Lord willing, look ahead to chapter 8, we're going to discover that when Jesus breaks the last of those seven seals, events begin to break out onto the earth that aren't common to our day. Events that we call the Great Tribulation upon the earth. Things that happen like we have never seen before and like will never be seen again. So there are these difficult events in our day, but there are these great final events that are ahead. And in between, 
in chapter 7, before Jesus breaks that seventh seal, before the great tribulation breaks out upon the earth, we read about a different kind of seal. We read in this chapter tonight about God sealing his people, protecting them in those last days of trouble. So read chapter 7 with me now, and I think you'll see that that's what he does. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. I think you can see in verses 1 through 3 what I described to you as we began. Before the crosswinds of the tribulation can be unleashed, verse 1, before the earth and the sea and the trees can be harmed in verse 3, as they will devastatingly be, as we'll see next week. But before they can be, before the earth is harmed, before the winds are unleashed, God's servants, at the end of verse 3, must be sealed. They must be protected from the desolation that will take place during the Great Tribulation, beginning in chapter 8. They must be protected. Now, that's not to say that these who are sealed beginning in verse 4, will be raptured away from the tribulation. 
It doesn't seem to me that God's people miss out on the tribulation, but that they live through it and don't leave this place until chapter 14. Nor is this protection that we're seeing in these seals an indication that in those days of trial, no physical harm will befall God's people. This book was written, as we said last week, to prepare God's people for suffering. And yet, even though the book teaches us that God's people will suffer, especially in those last days, and prepares us to suffer, it's still true that somehow, verse 3, the people of God are sealed in the midst of that suffering, protected in the midst of it. How so? How are they protected? How are they sealed? Well, I believe what John sees as God's bondservants are sealed here in verse 3, is reference not to a physical protection during the midst of suffering, but a spiritual one. Before the days of tribulation, God's chosen people here are sealed, such that though their bodies will suffer, their souls will not fall away, come what may upon the earth. They are being sealed such that in those difficult days that lie ahead, though their outer man may decay, their inner man, as Paul says, will be renewed day by day so that their strength and their faith will fail not. That's what's taking place here in this first half of Revelation 7. God's people are being sealed, protected, hedged about, not physically, but so that when they face suffering, they will not lose their faith no matter what the trial. Now that's good to know, isn't it? As we think about the end times, as we read forward in this book and see all that will befall the earth. It's bad enough when we watch the news now, but when we think about what will happen in this world, it is marvelous to know that God in those days, just as in these, will protect his people and keep them in the faith so that they will not fall away, even in the midst of great trials and temptations even as they face disaster and persecution and so on. Do not harm the earth, the angel said, or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Incidentally, though, I want you to realize that this sort of protection in the midst of trial is not just an end times thing. Doesn't the New Testament say that all of us who know Christ, as Paul puts it, have been sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4. God is protecting all of us so that we make it to the last day in the faith. Doesn't Jesus say that no one and nothing will be able to snatch us from his hand? And isn't Paul convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus? So when Revelation 7 speaks of God sealing his people, protecting them so that they continue in the faith, come whatever tribulations may be thrown at them in this world, it's not actually saying anything that we've not heard before. This chapter is really just reiterating concerning this group of 144,000 chosen ones what's taught throughout the whole New Testament. We have, each one of us who believes, been sealed for the day of redemption. We will, if we are believers in Jesus, make it to the end. And that's exactly what this chapter promises to the crowd that's gathered here in verses 
4 through 8. Come hell or high water, come persecution or distress or famine or sword, come even the great final tribulation between now and the day of Christ's return. For these people, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck them from his hand. In this period, before that great tribulation, during these days of those first six seals being broken open on the scroll of history, God is busy sealing a covenant people for the day of redemption, keeping them in the faith so that they will not fall away. And again, as we read the entirety of the New Testament, we find that's true of all Christians, not just an elite 144,000. That will become more obvious, I hope, as we read along. But John does mention a specific group of 144,000, doesn't he, in verses 4 through 8. And the $10,000 question in the book of Revelation chapter 7, and really one of the key questions or highly disputed questions in this entire book is who are these 144,000? We're going to spend the next several minutes trying to think that through. Who are the 144,000 that we read about here? Who are these people that God protects from losing their faith in the midst of these great trials? Well, at first glance, it may appear quite obvious to us. Well, there are 144,000 Jewish people, 12,000 from each of the 12 Israelite tribes. That seems to be what John is saying on the surface of things. And many people have taken and do take these verses precisely that way, reading them literally and saying what John is saying here is that before the tribulation or right at the beginning of it, God is going to save approximately 144,000 ethnic Jewish people, and he's going to prosper them and protect them during the end times. As I say, that's one possible interpretation, and there's surely good people who hold to it. But I, I want to point out to you tonight that the book of Revelation is rarely quite that simple. This book is replete, as you know, with visions and signs and symbolic language, symbolic beings, symbolic numbers, and so on. And given that this book is filled with symbols, I want to suggest to you that it's possible, I think highly likely, that the number 144,000 here is also a symbol. That it's not meant to, to give us an exact number of this group of people, but that it's a symbolic figure. Especially because it comes out so perfectly mathematically roundly. If you do the math, 144,000, you will realize, is the sum total of 12 times 12 times 1,000. And both the number 12 and the number 1,000 are biblical numbers of completeness. I don't think that's an accident. The 144,000 is probably not intended to tell us an exact number of sealed individuals here in Revelation 7, but rather is given to us as a symbol of completeness. A complete 12 times a complete 12 times a full thousand is God's way of saying, I'm going to save and seal all my people. The number when that day comes will be complete, whatever the exact number is. None of my people will be neglected in that great day, day of sealing and protecting. What John is seeing, in other words, is that God will not lose even one of his chosen people, no matter how strong the winds of tribulation may blow. The full number will come in. He seals and therefore saves and protects the complete group. 
That's what Jesus says in John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. I think that's what John is getting at here. Every last person that God places his seal upon during those days, these days, before the tribulation, every last person will make it through the trials with his or her faith intact. So we've gone halfway towards answering our question, who are the 144,000? I don't think they're a crowd literally of exactly or even uh, almost exactly 144,000 individuals. I think the number is symbolic of the fullness of God's chosen people, the completeness of his salvation of them. But then what about the fact, as we're told in verse 4, that this multitude comes from every tribe of the sons of Israel? What is John telling us there? Is he telling us that these chosen people, these sealed people in verses 4 through 8, are made up only of ethnic Jews? Is this complete number of people made up of only Israelites, whom God is going to seal before the great tribulation? And there are those, as I mentioned before, who interpret these verses in that way. They believe that At the time of the Great Tribulation, God is going to shift his focus from ethnic Gentiles who make up the largest part of the body of Christ to ethnic Jews, and that Revelation 7, 1 through 8 is one of the key passages that tells them that. And so they'll look at these verses and say it's clear in verses 4 through 8 that towards the end, God is going to be working primarily with the 12 tribes of Israel once more. They are the chosen ones that he's preparing to go through this great time of trial. And again, that sounds plausible. Why else would John call these people Israelites and even name the names of the Jewish tribes unless he was trying to show us that near the end, God's going to go back to the Old Testament pattern of working primarily among the Jews. But again, as logical as that may sound on the surface, I believe that there may be more to see here. In fact, as much as I believe that There may be still yet a great awakening among Jewish people, according to Romans 11. I don't think that's what John is saying here. I don't think John is referring to ethnic Jews here at all, as he describes God getting his people ready for the days of great trial. I rather believe that this crowd gathered, this 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, as John describes it, is symbolic, again, of the entirety of God's church you and I included, if we believe. And let me tell you why I think that, why I think that's the best way to read Revelation 7. First, most importantly, we need to be well aware, perhaps far more than most Christians currently are, that the New Testament is constantly referring to the church as the new Israel. The New Testament is constantly saying that it's the believers in Jesus who are the true Jews. For instance, Galatians 3, 7, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith. Not those who are ethnic Jews, but those who have the same faith as Abraham. They're his children. So that Paul can also say in Romans 2, 28 and 29, he is not a Jew who's one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. You see what Paul is saying in both of those places? He's saying the ethnic demarcation of Jewishness doesn't count unless you have faith in Christ, unless you are an inward Jew. 
so that at the end of Galatians in chapter 6.16, Paul can call the church the Israel of God. And this is common throughout the New Testament. The church is treated as the new Israel. The believers in Jesus are treated as the true Jews. And the promises that were made to Israel are applied to God's believing people today. Even Jesus himself speaks along these lines here in Revelation in his letter to the church at Smyrna. He refers to people who say that they're Jews but who are really a synagogue of Satan. He's saying again, they're not real Jews no matter what they say about themselves because they don't know me. So when we come to Revelation 7 and hear John describing a crowd comprised of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's not a leap then to understand that the apostle may well be speaking of Israel the same way that his fellow apostles and Jesus do, the same way the other New Testament writers do, that he may be speaking not of ethnic Jews here, but as the New Testament so often does of spiritual Jews, the church, the Israel of God to all those who are children of Abraham by faith, whether they be Jewish or Gentile by birth. Add to that the fact that this crowd of 144,000 reappears in chapter 14 with no mention of their ethnicity. And in chapter 14, we find them doing all the same things that all Christians do. Singing to the Lamb, following him wherever he goes, walking uprightly, and so on. And so I think what John is showing us in Revelation 14 is that these people, are they're believers. They're like you and me. He speaks of them in this symbolic language here. But I think the best understanding of Revelation 7, 1, 8 is that he's not speaking about ethnic Jews, but spiritual ones. Not ethnic Israel, but the Israel of God, the church. And then the question, though, is why does he bother to mention these 12 tribes at all? Why doesn't he just tell us that he's talking about the church and not ethnic Israel? Well, why doesn't he tell us a lot of things in the book of Revelation that he's really talking about, right? Don't be surprised when you read the book of Revelation and and it speaks in symbolic terms. But also we may say he speaks in the symbolic terms. He tells us about the 12 tribes for the same reason he uses the number 144,000. The number 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000, symbolizes completeness. And so... is the same thing when you read someone listing all the 12 tribes of Israel. Completeness. The whole group is there. In other words, in John's vision, it's not just five or six tribes that God deigns to seal and protect, but every tribe, verse 4, of the sons of Israel. It's not just some of God's people, John is saying, who are going to be sealed for the day of redemption, but all of them. The entirety of his believing people. The point of listing these tribes, in other words, is not point of limitation but a point of completion it's not that John is trying to say it's only these 12 ethnic tribes that are included in the blessing of verses 1 through 4 he's saying that it's all God's people all the sons of Israel will be included and again if we're going to talk in New Testament terms about all the sons of Israel we'll be talking not about those who are Jews outwardly but about those who are of the faith of Abraham Galatians 3 7 So the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel, it seems to me, is not a description of a crowd of ethnic Jews to be saved at the end times. This is a, a symbol, a picture of all God's people, all God's believing people, ethnic, Jew, and Gentile alike. That's why the number is so large and so round and so mathematically symmetrical. That's why the full number of the clans are included, because 
this 144,000 from these 12 tribes are representative of everyone, all the elect of God, all the entirety of his people, every clan of God's children, and the full number of the church, the Israel of God. The protection of God, then, in these times of trial, verses 1 through 4, the great sealing of God's chosen people before the seventh seal is broken is not, therefore, a special end times dispensation of grace to ethnic Jewish people, but is rather God's spiritual protection and preservation during this whole era of the six seals of world history of all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who believe in the God of Abraham, all who cling to the Jewish Messiah. Revelation 7, 1 through 8, I think is a description of what God is doing among all his people even today. You and I I want to suggest to you, are living right in the middle of Revelation 7, 1 through 8. We, if we believe in Christ, are part of this group of the clans of the Israel of God, whom John sees in his vision. Right now, God is active in the world and in this very church and in your families and in your lives, preparing his people for suffering that's ahead, sealing our souls so that we won't lose our faith, come what may into our lives. Whether we face... Tribulation with a capital T or just tribulation with a small t that's normal to our everyday lives. Verses 1 through 8 are reminding us that God will preserve his whole church so that we will not wilt in the time of trial. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, will come to me and I will raise them up at the last day. In fact, it seems to me that That's exactly what we see coming to fruition in the latter half of this chapter. In verses 1 through 8, John sees a great multitude on the earth whom God is preparing to go through trial and tribulation. But then in verses 9 through 17, the scene flashes forward many, many years, and John sees a great multitude now in heaven, verse 9, who have come out of the great tribulation, verse 14 with their faith intact. Do you see that? I'm suggesting to you that the group that's sealed in the first half of the, half of the chapter and the group that's celebrating in the second half of the chapter are one and the same group. Before the tribulation, John sees him on the earth in this symbolic form, 144,000 complete group of people. And then after the tribulation, he sees them in heaven in crystal clear reality, verse 9 a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And it's precisely so that we could get to this point that I've spent all this time trying to show you that these 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel are a picture of the whole church. Because we needed to see that the crowd in verses 1 through 8 and the crowd in verses 9 through 17 are the same crowd, seen from two different perspectives at two different times. We need to see that Revelation 7 is actually a before and after picture of God's suffering people. We see them heading into dark days in verses 1 through 8 with nothing but God's seal to protect them. And then we see them coming out of dark days in verses 9 through 17, spiritually unscathed and full of joy, just as the Father has promised. And what's the point 
of this before and after look at the people of God? Why does God show this to John, and why does John write it down for us? Why do we need to see the people of God before they go through trials and after they finish their course on this earth? To demonstrate that God will accomplish his purposes. To demonstrate that those verses that we just quoted are true. He will finish the good work that he started in you. No one will snatch you from his hand. He has sealed you for the day of redemption. It's all true. That's what this chapter is teaching us. God seals his people in verse 4 so that they might come out of the tribulation, verse 14, without losing their faith. So that they might all make it through. So that none of them would be missing. And so that his son would surely raise them up at the last day. And here they are on verse 9. On the last day, every last one of them worshiping at his throne just as God promised. Not Jews only, not Americans only, not Baptists only, but we find here people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and not one of them is missing from the crowd. So just behold the power of God as you see these worshipers around his throne. Only God has the power to take the story of Jesus, which took place in a relative backwater among 12 little tribes of Israel, and which, even when John wrote this book, was confined mostly to the Mediterranean world. Only God has the power and the ability to spread that message from that little group of people and that tiny pocket of the world to every nook and cranny of the globe so that now people from every tongue and tribe and language are there around his throne. And only God has the ability, through all the horrific things that his people face in this world and all, all the untold horrors that they will face, in the last days of planet earth only god has the ability to keep these people from simply throwing in the towel and from losing their faith and he always does it he accomplishes his purposes in his people without fail he invariably and infallibly completes the good work that he begins in his people. And that's precisely what this chapter is about. Those whom God seals in verse 4 stand before his throne, verse 9, trusting him still and not one of them is missing. Are you a part of that great multitude? Are you a part of the Israel of God? Are you a child of Abraham by faith? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ forsaking all other hopes and all idols. If you don't, may I plead with you to believe in him tonight, to turn to him tonight, to delay not a moment longer before you turn to this faithful, covenant-keeping God and to his Son. And if you do believe, I want you to see your face in this crowd tonight, both as they prepare to suffer in verses 1 through 8 and once they've overcome it all in verses 9 through 17. If you know Jesus, your face is surely in both of John's portraits. And just like the trials of Revelation 6, as we said last week, are taking place as we speak, so the sealing and the protecting power of God in Revelation 7 is taking place in your life as we speak. 
And if you know Christ, God has set his seal on you and he's working faith in you even tonight so that you will endure with Jesus. So that no one and nothing will snatch you from his hand and so that you will someday be around this throne with a palm branch in your hand and clothed in white garments. God is even now protecting you, sealing you for the day of redemption. And haven't you already seen in your life how he's done that? how he's protected you, how he's kept you from falling away. Many of us, if we've been Christians for any length of time, can look back at points in our life when the temptation was great or when the trials were sore or when the heartache was piled upon heartache and remember how easy it would have been for us to just cash in our Christian chips, to throw in the towel, to forsake the narrow road and just go back to the broad and easy one. Can you look back at your life and see that there were times like that where you almost could have walked away? Or maybe times when you were simply toying with sin and dancing with the devil and could have easily waltzed right over the cliff into hell. You can look back at your life, many of you, and see with ample evidence God's sealing protection, God's commitment to complete the good work that he began in you. And for all the times when you perceptibly felt him tugging you back from the cliff's edge, there were probably dozens of times when he redirected your steps without you ever realizing he was doing it, without you ever knowing how close to the precipice your feet actually came. And I tell you that if you're in Christ, if you're a part of the Israel of God, Revelation 7 is your story. God has said of you, don't harm the trees, don't harm the earth, don't harm the sea until these people are sealed and protected for the day of redemption, until I have gotten them all and protected them all. This is the story of your life. It's not the Father's will, verses 1 through 8, that any of those to whom he has given his, to his Son should perish, but rather that each one of them Verses 9 through 17, be raised up at the last day. What a marvelous heavenly father we have. No wonder the crowds are seen with a loud voice in verse 10. God has been so good to this 144,000 group. In fact, let's just ask a second question from this chapter, the second of only two. What does God do for this 144,000? That's the second question. The first question was, who are the 144,000? But now that we've thought about who they are, and even seen that we who believe are among their number, the question is, what does God do for these people? What does God do for his covenant people, for his 144,000? Well, the first thing, as we've been saying at length, is that he gets them through tribulation. He gets them through. Now, at this point, we need to just take a detour for a moment and point out something important in verse 14. In verse 14, John is told that the crowd that we saw gathered around the throne in verse 9 has, quote, come out of the great tribulation. And so we might assume, since this crowd has come out of the great tribulation, that the crowd that we saw in verse 4 and the crowd that we saw in verse 9 represent only believers who will live at these end times it might appear in other words that the sealing that god is going to do is granted to christians who are going to live right 
at the end of the world through the final tribulation because the, the angel says that they're going to come out of it. But then on the other hand, we've been saying that the number 144,000 and the listing of all 12 tribes of Israel symbolizes completeness, all God's people, which wouldn't seem to include just believers living at the end times. And the multitude in verse 9, which no one could count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, seems to refer to all God's people. That's how all God's people are often spoken about, it seems to me, in this book of Revelation. So on one hand, it looks like we're talking about all God's people. But then in verse 14, it looks like maybe we're just talking about a select few who live through the great tribulation. And the question is, which is it? Well, let me point out to you that it's often the case in prophetic literature like this that phrases have double meanings. They don't mean two opposite things, but they have a fulfillment with a small f, and then they have a fulfillment with a capital F out in the future. And I think the phrase and the wording about the great tribulation in verse 14 is similar. Yes, John is about to describe in chapter 8 the great tribulation, capital T, the final days of planet Earth. And certainly the sealing, the protecting that God's doing in this chapter will apply to people living in that day. But remember, and I think I've done a woeful job of keeping this at the forefront as we've looked at this book, the Christians who read this book first, the Christians to whom John initially gave it, were going through a significant tribulation of their own. They were being persecuted by their neighbors. They were being persecuted by the empire, severely in some cases, such that even though they were just living through the beginning of the birth pangs, it may have felt to them like great tribulation, lowercase t. And so one purpose of the book is that they would be encouraged to press on in suffering. John reminds them that Jesus is sovereign over the breaking of the seals and that God has sealed them for the day of redemption and that God is sovereign over world history, all the things that we've been saying, because the people who are reading this book were suffering sorely. That's one of the great reasons this book was written, to say when you suffer sorely, God is still in control. And so there is a group of people who are going to go through the Great Tribulation, capital T, but John's writing in the midst of a group of people who are going through Great Tribulation, lowercase t. And when John writes chapter 7 and portrays this great multitude which no one could count and says they've come out of the Great Tribulation, it's quite possible that he has both capital T and lowercase t in mind. That he's speaking about a group that comes, yes, out of the Great Tribulation, but he's also speaking about Christians who go through all sorts of trials and difficulties in this world. I think he has both in mind when he says these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. And he's saying to them all, the point of this chapter, God will get you through. If you know Jesus, he will not let you go. Your faith will not falter in the end. And that's great encouragement, isn't it? Not only for those finding themselves living at the end of planet Earth, but it was great encouragement for first century Christians who found themselves in the middle of an arena looking across at wild beasts, 
or who found themselves tied up in the emperor's courtyard and being lit like torches for their faith. And it's great encouragement to us when we face cancer and children who leave and car wrecks and all sorts of things that seem to us like great tribulation and that are. What God would do for believers and what he will do for believers, strengthening them in the days of that great tribulation, he is busy doing all throughout this period in history for all of his people. That's the first thing. What does he do? It's what we've been saying all along. He gets us through. He seals us so that we come through spiritually unscathed. But not only does God get us through, but we're also told in this chapter that he gets us out of the tribulation. He gets us out of it. Not on the front end, but eventually. That's the point of verse 14, isn't it? I said to him, my Lord, you know who these people are. And he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They come out of it. They've gone through it. They've lived in it. God has kept them persevering through it. But eventually God is going to bring them out of it. One day a door is going to open and they're going to walk through and all the junk of this earth will be gone. One day they will cross the river and the peace that will come on the other side will be like nothing they've ever seen. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I've gone to prepare a place for you on high, and I will come again to receive you so that where I am, you may be also. You'll come out of the suffering eventually. It won't last always. We won't skip over tribulation and just go from ease to greater ease in heaven. But we will come out of the tribulations that we face in this world. And John describes that in verses 16 and 17. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those verses tell you that God's people are going to suffer. Some of them are going to be hungry. Some of them are going to be thirsty. Some of them are going to be beat down by the heat. Some of them are going to weep. All of them, if they live long enough, are going to weep. But God will bring them out. And we'll dwell on these particular blessings in more detail when we come to the end of the book and find John dwelling on them in more detail. But just for a moment... Meditate on them. Verse 17. Are there any tears in your eyes? Maybe not literally right now, but in the days and the weeks that have just gone by, have there been tears in your eyes? God will soon wipe them away forever. Is there any difficulty that's beating down on you like the hot summer sun? Soon it will be no more. Do you ever feel a restlessness, a hunger, or a soul thirst that you just can't seem to quench. Well, in heaven we're told they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore. Verse 17, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. God's sealing of his believing people not only gets us through this world's troubles, but guarantees that someday God will take us out of this world's troubles as well 
And finally, as we ask the question, what does God do for his 144,000? It's not only gets, he gets us through the tribulation and he eventually takes us out of it, but I want you thirdly to notice that he also rescues his people from a difficulty that is far more serious than even the greatest of earthly trials. It's not really the main point of this chapter, but we must notice that the great crowd in verses 9 through 17 has not only come out of the great tribulation, but that they've come out clothed in white robes. They have come out clean, in other words. They've come out washed thoroughly from their iniquities. They have come out whiter than snow as far as God's accounting. They've come out forgiven of their sins. They've been saved, in other words, from something far worse than locust plagues and persecution and famine and end times disasters. This innumerable crowd from every tongue, tribe, and people and nation has been saved, we're being told here, from themselves, from their own sins and from the hell that those sins deserve, which hell would make Revelation chapters 8 and following seem like child's play. Every person in this Revelation 7 multitude And each of us whose face is in the crowd deserves hell. But when we look at the crowd in verse 9, they're not in hell. They're standing in the throne room of heaven, clothed in white robes. And how did they get that way? Well, verse 14, we read, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What a marvelous picture this is. Their robes are made white by washing them in blood. Their robes are made white by the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb. All those who wash their robes in His blood are sealed. Not only in this symbolic sealing on the forehead in verse 4 so that we will not be swept away by life's trials but we are sealed with the blood of Christ so that we will not be far more importantly swept away by God's wrath we are sealed on our foreheads so that we can stand in the day of tribulation but we are sealed with the blood of Christ so that we may stand on the day of judgment It's a splendid twofold blessing that we see, and it's summarized there in verse 14, isn't it? These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, marvelous. And yet even more marvelous, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And that's a blessing, a twofold blessing, that belongs to each one of us if we belong to Jesus. Do you belong to him? Have you washed your robes white in the blood of the Lamb? Will you be able to stand at the bar of God's justice with Jesus as your advocate? Will you be able to stand in the days of trial? Are you certain that you will someday step out of the raging river into the safety and peace of heaven's shores? These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Are you one of those people? If you are, 
then you can understand why the multitude in verse 9 is waving palm branches. You can understand why they would sing with a loud voice. And if you are one of this multitude who is going someday to come out of all these trials and who has had your robe dipped clean in the blood of the Lamb, then surely you will want to join with the angels in singing, verse 12, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.